We're at a time of year where there's stories of all kinds that, that we cherish and that, that we love, of course, stories that we see in our favorite movies, stories that we see here in our favorite Christmas songs, in books that we read, traditions that we have as a family or as a community, each having some type of story. And with each of our favorite Christmas stories, there's a story behind the story. With the songs that you like, there's a story behind those songs. With the movies that you like, there's a story behind the story. And I'd like to share one example of that with you this morning. In March of 1863, this man named Charlie Longfellow, he left his family's house. His family lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And his family actually lived in the house that was headquarters for George Washington around 1776, pretty significant year for him. But his family lived in this house, and he, without his family's knowledge, left and boarded a train for Washington, D.C., because he wanted to enlist in President Lincoln's Union Army to fight in the Civil War. He was 18 years old, leaves for D.C., his family doesn't know, and it had been a hard two years for Charlie and his family. Just two years before this, Charlie's mom had died in a fire, and his dad tried to rescue her and became so burned in the process he couldn't even attend his own wife's funeral. His dad, over the next two years, feared that he himself was going to be sent to an asylum because his grief was so intense over losing his wife. Charlie's now left. He's going to fight in the Civil War. A few months into the war, he was fighting at a battlefield in Virginia. And it was on November 27, 1863, this very day, 1863, Charlie was shot through the left shoulder. And it went through his left shoulder, across his back, and out his right shoulder, barely missing his spine by an inch. His dad found out about it and immediately left for D.C. Charlie boarded a, a train and met him there. They met in D.C. on December 5th and met with the doctors. The doctors told Charlie's dad that he was lucky not to be paralyzed, but that he was going to survive. They go back to Cambridge, to their home in Massachusetts. And on Christmas Day in 1863, Charlie's dad is sitting at their house reflecting on all that's happened to them over the past few years and all that's going on in the country at the time of the Civil War. And he begins to hear the church bells ring in Cambridge on Christmas Day. And he hears singing of peace on earth. And Charlie's dad, who was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, very famous poet, he was a widowed father of six kids. The oldest had just been almost paralyzed as his country battled itself. And he sat there and thought about the evil and injustice and wrong in the world and this tension that he was holding of pain and hope. And he wrote a poem called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's been put to music. Many of you are familiar with this song. But he, the first verse of the, song, of the poem says this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So you feel the hope, you feel the joy, but then a couple verses later he writes this, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. This tension of pain and hope, of sorrow and joy. Leading up to Christmas Day, as has been mentioned in the service, we're going to be working through the Old Testament book of Ruth. 
And it's, it's a short book, and we're going to just cover a chapter a week leading up to Christmas Day. And, and with this, just to give you a heads up, we have these little books that a family in our church has generously donated, 150 copies of this book. And it's a short little devotional, like a daily reading through the season of Advent that connects the book of Ruth to the story of Christmas, the story of Christ's birth. So we have copies of this that we'd love to give you. You can just go and grab one. There's copies when the service is done in our church library, just right out these doors to the left. Go and grab one for you uh, for you and your spouse to read together, you and your family to work through. Um, but there's, this is going to be really helpful for you, for all of us, uh, to walk through these, this story and these truths during Christmas time. And those will be available after the service. But as we walk through the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is the story behind the story. There is no Christmas without this story. And it's a story that has this tension of pain and hope. Pain and hope. The beginning of the story that you heard Peggy read just a minute ago, it's, it's going to sound bleak. It's going to sound hopeless. But we're going to see hints of God's hope as we work through these circumstances, even as God works in the midst of the hopelessness. So if you're not already turned there, let's go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, then Ruth. If you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 222. Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to step into the first scene. And this first scene is going to give us the background of the whole story. It's going to lay out the setting for us to help us understand what's really going on here. And in this first scene, we'll see it's a, the setting is a hopeless time. A hopeless time. What the narrator does in this story is he immediately tells us the era of history, the time in history that the story of Ruth takes place. So let's look in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the day when the judges ruled. Stop right there. In the day when the judges ruled. This this time of the judges, it was a dark time for for the people of God. This was after the leadership of Moses and Joshua, but before the leadership of people like David and Solomon. And in this in-between time, God raises up these judges that are kind of like a military leader, kind of their leadership role is unique, but the most famous of which that you may have heard of is Samson. And this period, if you go back and read the book of Judges, which is right before the book of Ruth, it starts out okay. But as the book goes on, it's just a downward spiral for the people of God. They move further and further away from God and closer and closer to false gods. And because they move further and further away from God and closer and closer to false gods, they disobey God more and more and more. And the theme of this, just turn one page back with me to the very last verse in the book of Judges. This is the refrain that repeats over and over throughout the end of the book especially, Judges 21, verse 25. This sums up this whole era. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the time of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king to lead God's people to obedience, and so everyone just does what they think is best. It's a hopeless time to live. It's a dark time to live. But look look at the next phrase of Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. 
<clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. I don't think those two things are coincidence. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There's no food. There's no harvest. There's, people are hungry and they're starving. The shortage of food and people being hungry is directly connected to everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God told his people way back in the Old Testament that in my covenant, in my covenant with you, people of Israel, as you follow my commands, you'll experience blessing, but as you don't follow my commands, you'll experience curse. And part of that is I'm going to curse the ground, I'm going to curse your harvest, and this is what has happened. The people of Israel have disobeyed God, and there's a famine in the land because of it. And what's interesting here in verse 1 is the land is not some generic land. It's, it's the land, the promised land, the place that God had promised to his people for generation. It was the place of God's people. So the author of Ruth, the narrator that's telling us this story, they know that this is not some accident of history, that there's a famine. But this is the outworking of God's covenant. And all of this describes what it's like to live during this time. In, those, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So that's kind of the wide-angle view as the, as the story starts. And then it's going to zoom in onto one family. This family is not royal. This family is not wealthy. This family is not known. This family is not powerful. It's just an ordinary family that lives in the small town of Bethlehem. And here's what we learn about them. Let's look at verse 1 again. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So this family from the town of Bethlehem, which is repeated multiple times, verse 1, it's a man of Bethlehem in Judah. The end of verse 2, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So remember that. Carry that with you as we go through this story. It'll come back up. But you have a husband, the wife, and their two sons leave Bethlehem because of the famine and go to Moab. But Moab was not the best place for them to go. Moab was a place of the enemies of God's people. They did not worship the same God as the people of Israel. They worshiped False gods, they would have been considered unclean in Israel, not allowed in the temple of God. But that's where they go. They travel the long journey to Moab, a different location with different gods. And in Moab, this family faces tragedy. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech dies. The two sons marry two women from Moab, which was not allowed for the people of Israel to marry women from another country because they worshiped other gods. But then 10 years later, those two sons die. And verse 5 is such a hopeless verse. It says, so the woman, it doesn't even call her Naomi anymore. 
It just says, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This, in these short five verses, has gone from with to without. You picture Naomi standing at her third grave in 10 years. She's buried her husband. She's buried her son. Now she's burying her other son. As we think about her standing there, maybe she's crying, but maybe she's so emotionally exhausted by this point that she can't even cry anymore. She feels hopeless. She is left in a country that she's not from without her husband and her two sons. This may seem like a really negative way to start the Advent season, I know. But I think it's helpful because for many this time of year, it's not always merry and bright. For many this time of year, it turns up the volume on your pain. It turns up the volume on your grief, on your disappointment, that you realize this time of year, more than any other time of year, it feels like, yeah, my life is not what I expected it was going to be like. My life is not what I wanted it to be like. And I want you to know, the book of Ruth tells us, there's space for that. There's room for that. There's, this story's gonna show there's hope for that in the middle of those kinds of emotions. And there's hints of hope Throughout, Look what happens in verse 6. We're going to see hints of hope even throughout all this grief, hints that maybe God is doing something. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are in Moab, have been there. Naomi's been there for over 10 years now. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And they hear in the fields that the Lord has visited his people, that there's no longer a famine anymore. There's food now. The Lord has provided for his people the news that God is not done working. He hasn't stopped working. This truth for us that pain doesn't mean God's not present. And sometimes God's purposes start in what looks like a completely hopeless time. We're not quite there yet, though. There's some, still some difficulty for us to work through. So we go from a hopeless time to zooming in even more on a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation. Once Naomi hears about the Lord providing food, her and her two daughters-in-law decide to go back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, where she hasn't been for over 10 years. And she goes along with Orpah and Ruth. And as these three women make the long journey from Moab back to Bethlehem, it's as if they come, as you're reading through the story, it's as if they come to a fork in the road. Or this way for Bethlehem, this way back to Moab. And when they come to the fork in the road, Naomi starts to doubt whether it's really best for Orpah and Ruth to come with her. And here's what she tells them in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. We may think, why would Naomi tell them to go back? Wouldn't, shouldn't she want them to come to Israel and worship the God of Israel? Well, don't think it's that black and white. 
she knows there's no future for them with her. She knows there's nothing about her, there's nothing about her situation that could benefit them. She tells them to return, and she even prays that the Lord would show them the same steadfast love as they've shown to her and her family. But Orpah and Ruth say, no, we're going to go with you. We want to go with you to your people. And then what she does after that is she lays out the layers of hopelessness of what it means to stay with her. She tells them, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. Why would you stay with me? Not only do I have, not have any more sons, I'm too old to have kids. Why would you go with me? Not only can I not have kids, but even if I could, they'd be too old by the time, you'd be too old by the time they were old enough to get married and have kids. Hopelessness on top of hopelessness on top of hopelessness on top of hopelessness. Naomi lists out all these reasons to say, there's no future if you stay with me. It does not make sense for you to go with me. It's not the sensible thing to do. It's not the logical thing to do. And here's their reaction. Skip down to verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. You can think about this. These women have been through a lot together. This is not a small decision for them to part ways. And then here's two different paths that form. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. These women have been through a lot together. All they have left is each other. And after this encouragement, after this urging, Orpah kisses Naomi as a gesture of leaving and saying goodbye. And she starts to walk back towards Moab. But it says, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. She held tight to Naomi. And I think this is going to be a physical way of Ruth showing what she's about to say to Naomi. We'll see that. Let's, let's look at verse 15. Because when we come to verse 15, we begin to see what's at stake here in this decision. Verse 15. And she said, this is Naomi to Ruth. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. To go back with Orpah to Moab was to go back to the gods of Moab. Not the God of Israel. Not the Lord. So there's two options here. You can go to the Lord with nothing in Bethlehem, or you can go without the Lord but have everything in Moab. Here's Ruth's decision, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You can picture this. They're standing at this crossroads. Orpah is walking back towards Moab, and you can see her in the distance, and probably every now and then she turns back to look at Naomi and Ruth still standing there. And after Naomi says, see, Orpah's gone back. You should go with her. Ruth looks at her and says, don't tell me to leave you. I'm not doing it. You can see the tears on Ruth's face, the tears on Naomi's face. It's a highly emotional moment. And she says, don't make me leave you. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to live where you live. I'm going to die where you die. I'm going to be buried where you're going to be buried. The only thing that will part me from you is death itself. 
And this loyalty that she shows by clinging to her and then what she says, at the center of that loyalty comes at the end of verse 16. Look there with me. She has said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. But right in the middle of this statement, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So in the midst of this hopeless situation, here's another hint of hope. The language Ruth uses here, that's Old Testament language for salvation. That's Old Testament language for redemption and rescue. And usually, it's from the mouth of God to his people, where God tells Israel, you shall be my people and I will be your God. But here, it comes out of Ruth's mouth saying, I'm not going back to Moab because I don't worship those gods anymore. I'm going to Bethlehem with you because I worship the Lord now. What Ruth has done is she has As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, she has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Lord has worked this in Ruth's life, but where did Ruth learn this kind of language? She definitely didn't learn it in Moab. They didn't worship the God of Israel in Moab. They didn't know the God of Israel in Moab. She didn't know the history and the stories of the people of Israel from Moab. So where did she learn it? I think she learned it from Naomi. I think she learned it from her mother-in-law. Up to this point in the story, the only character to say the name of the Lord has been Naomi. But now, his name comes out of Ruth's mouth. Ruth has watched Naomi grieve. She's watched Naomi mourn. Ruth has grieved herself. Naomi lost a son, but Ruth lost a husband. And Ruth has seen a real faith in the Lord in Naomi that was frustrated, that was angry, that was sad, but still under all of that messiness trusted the Lord. She's watched Naomi cling to the Lord the way Ruth clung to her. And what's so interesting is that every time, almost every time, Naomi refers to the Lord, she uses his covenant name. As you see in your Bible, it's Lord in all caps there. That's the name God gave his people to call him, the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew, meaning I am who I am or I will be who I am. I'm never not going to be who I am. I am and will always be the God of mercy and grace. I am and will always be the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. I am and will always be the God who keeps his promises and accomplishes his purposes. The hint of hope is that here in the midst of Naomi's pain and grief, Ruth comes to know God. Ruth comes to know the true God. And in the midst of Naomi's suffering, Ruth gives up everything to follow Naomi and her God. The God she has come to know personally as the Lord. I think there's a helpful truth for us here in the fact that often, can't necessarily say always, but I can say often, God's work in my life is about more than just my life. God's work in your life is about more than just your life. We are not at the center. And God, everything God is doing in the world is revolving around us and what's going on with us. God is at the center. 
And he's orchestrating all things for the good of his people, for his own glory, to bring about glory to Christ. We know these kinds of truths, but the hope here, the truth here, is that sometimes, sometimes, God will bring about hardship to you so that through you, he can bring hope to someone else. And in reality, I could tell this same story from multiple lives in this room. As I've watched you, as we as a church have watched you suffer in different circumstances, we've, walked, we've watched you go through pain. And watching you, me personally, and a lot of people in this room could say the same thing, has brought me hope in Christ, has encouraged my own faith. Many of you have been people that have suffered well, suffered tragically, but suffered well. But let's hope in this truth, let's cling to this truth that sometimes what God is doing in my life may not be mainly about me. God guides us through trials and suffering and difficulty because he has a purpose far greater than we could ever imagine. And this is true for Ruth and Naomi, as we're going to see. But I don't say this to belittle pain. I don't say this to say, well, because we believe this truth, we should just smile and be happy all the time. That's not real. But I want to encourage us to trust God's purposes. That this right here in Ruth 1, it may look like a hopeless situation, but part of God's purposes in Naomi's life is about what he's doing in Ruth's life. Bringing Ruth to himself and positioning Ruth to be used to bring hope to the entire world. Maybe, maybe the reason you think God can't or won't use you is the very reason he will use you. Maybe the situation you think God's work is absent is the very situation where his work is the strongest. Ruth has this newfound faith, and it's exciting, but it doesn't make their troubles disappear. This is the last scene that we're coming to, a hopeless family, a hopeless family. Let's look at verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them, just hear that phrase for a second. The two of them. When we started this story, there were six of them. Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Kilion, Orpah, and Ruth. Now there's two. Naomi and Ruth. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi and Ruth walk back into Bethlehem and there's excitement because of it. These neighbors and friends have not seen Naomi for over 10 years. But the women of the town, they see them entering and they say, is this Naomi? Keep this group of women, the women of the town in mind. They're going to be chorus that kind of bookends this whole story. But they, they walk back in the town and they say, is this Naomi? When they last saw Naomi, she had a husband and she had two sons. When they last saw Naomi, she hadn't carried 10 years of grief and sorrow in her body. I'm sure the years 
have not only changed her family, but the compounding grief and sorrow have probably changed her appearance in some ways. And Naomi responds, she says in verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, don't call me Naomi. Her name, that name means sweet. Call me Mara. That name means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I, I don't think, I, I don't think that Naomi is necessarily saying she is a bitter woman. But I think she's saying bitter and hard circumstances have characterized her life. Her life, if you summed up the past decade of her life in one word, it would be bitter, painful, hard. And then there's an interesting comment that Naomi says in verse 21. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. There's a tendency to view Naomi as a woman of weak faith and a bad attitude. But I don't think that's who she is. Her words are raw. She's honest. She doesn't pretend everything is fine when it's not. She doesn't internalize her pain and grief. She admits she's empty. She's coming back empty. But in what she's saying here, she says true things about the Lord. She says things that are true and foundational to who the Lord is. She realizes he's in control of all things. Notice the subject change that happens in what she says in verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. We would expect it to say, I went away full and I came back empty. But she says, I went away full in the Lord, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Steadfast love, faithfulness, promise-keeping God brought me back empty. She recognizes God is in control. She sees God's hand is over the whole thing. And when trouble comes in her life, she says, God is in this trouble. Now, Naomi's view of God may make us uncomfortable in some ways. We may not be sure how to fit it in our category. Some of you know very well Naomi's experience and the kind of things that she is saying. But I'm not claiming that Naomi is perfect, and I'm definitely not claiming having a right view of God makes our pain and sorrow go away. But I do know that we will never find comfort in this life if we believe that we can turn a dark corner and all of a sudden God's not there. God is in every detail. He is in every circumstance. He is even in the pain and hurt and tragedy. Can't, God cannot do evil, but evil is not outside of his control. Too often in hard circumstances, you and I want to make excuses for God. He, we don't need to make excuses for him. We will never find comfort in our suffering by shrinking God. And it's normal to ask why. Naomi asked this question, why is this happening to me? And you see this over and over in the Bible. A lot of people in the Bible are trying to figure out why God is doing what he's doing. But what you don't see in the Bible is people concluding after they ask why that God's not in control of the hard things that are happening. Job himself says in Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, one wrong statement that I think Naomi makes in her grief and in her sorrow is she says at the end of verse 21, 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says, the Lord has testified against me. Naomi thinks her suffering means God's against her. She thinks her suffering means God's condemning her. But that's not the case. Yes, it is tragic, it is painful, it is hard, but it's not hopeless like we thought it was. Out of these bitter experiences, God is going to bring about something sweet. And at the very last verse of the chapter, you see one more hint of hope. Look with me at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That last sentence, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And I understand if you think, what's so hopeful about barley? I, I understand. But the, narr- the narrator is not trying to tell us what time of year it is. When God's at work, things are not as they seem to us. What looks hopeless isn't hopeless. What looks meaningless is not meaningless. The chapter started with what? A famine. And then we get to the very end of the chapter, and there's a harvest. They come back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. God started this story with a famine. God ends this chapter, not the story, with a harvest because he is beginning a work of reversal. And to be sure, Naomi, Ruth, the other characters, they don't know why this is significant yet. And at this point in the story, we don't either. Finite creatures like us can never completely understand what an infinite God is doing. But we know the Lord is always faithful to his promises, so this cannot be the end of the story. I mean, you can look at multiple examples over the course of the Bible and see this same truth over and over, and where do you see it more clearly than in the life of our Savior Jesus Christ? When he came into this world to Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem, it was not an exciting, incredible, all pomp and circumstance moment. He was in a barn, and the ruler was trying to have him killed. And then he lives, and he does miracles, and he does teaching, but people reject him over and over, and he's still promising, I'm I'm here to save, I'm here to save, I'm here to save God's people. And then this guy that's supposed to be the Savior, next thing we know is we're reading through the story, he's hanging on a cross. That's hopelessness of all hopelessness. The Savior of the world is dying? He's he's dead? They stick the spear in his side to prove that he's dead. They take him down and lay him in a tomb. Now, many of you in this room, you know the story, so we don't always feel the weight of the hopelessness of that. But if you're the disciples and you're following this man for three years and you hear him saying he's going to bring hope and joy and he's going to save, and then he dies... But three days later, when he came back from the dead, that reached back all the way to his birth and showed the purpose and hope and joy and direction of everything that had happened. That every time it looked like it was hopeless, another greater eternal hope was still coming. And in the book of Ruth, in the midst of religious collapse, moral collapse, societal collapse, their families collapsing, God has not forgotten or withdrawn his plan. 
God was at work in the least likely of circumstances, in the least likely of places, among the least likely of people, to accomplish his purposes. And the story of Ruth is going to give hope when all hope seems to be lost. Like the story of Ruth, this Advent season, like I mentioned at the beginning, can cause us to feel pain and hope, that tension, pain and hope. You walk around and you see people celebrating and having parties and having get-togethers, and you wonder, how can they be so happy when I've gone through what I've gone through? Will I ever have that kind of joy again? Will I ever have that kind of laughter again? Will I ever smile like that again? And we have and will get a sense of hopelessness at different times in life. But in this story, God kindly allows us to see how he works so that we'll learn to trust him. He's showing us through the book of Ruth, I worked my good purposes through hopeless circumstances then, and I'll work my my purposes through hopeless circumstances now. I kept my promises then, I'll keep my promises now. I was with you then, I am with you now, and I will always be with you. Charlie Longfellow's dad, he clung to that kind of hope in the midst of pain. One of the final verses of his poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and many of you know this. It says, Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. As long as God is on his throne, hopelessness will not overcome. As long as God is on his throne, there's always hope. Let's pray together.